Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Genesis 9, 6. The scripture says, whoever sheds human blood, by humans his blood will be shed. For God made humans in his image. The hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. So it is when the baby sleeps peacefully and his mother's lap is curled. But what when the cradle is empty, when no lullaby is heard, when no love, no warmth, no tenderness in a mother's heart is stirred. When the hand that should rock the infant is the hand that takes the pen and signs the warrant for the infant's death, oh God, help us then. When the hand that should rock the infant is the hand that waves the sign and cries for the right that would commit humanity's grimmest crime. What hopelessness it is pervades this earth's blackest and darkest night when the hand that should rock the infant is the hand that takes its life. On January the 22nd, 1973, black-robed Supreme Court justices reinstituted child sacrifice in the United States by legalizing abortion on demand. Jane Roe of Texas had been raped and had conceived a child as a result of that rape. And the laws of the state of Texas, like those of most other states in the U.S., prohibited her from seeking an abortion. She believed that this was an infringement of her constitutional rights, and so she appealed her case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, based on their interpretation of the 14th Amendment, argued for a right to privacy that involved a right to abortion on demand. Now, make no mistake, it was not the intention of our framers to give citizens of the United States a right to abortion. The preamble to the Declaration of Independence makes that abundantly clear. We memorized it as children. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, and the 14th Amendment didn't have anything to do with the right to privacy and right to abortion either. The 14th Amendment is actually a post-Civil War guarantee of the rights of freed slaves. And it made reference to the statement of the Founding Fathers in the preamble to the Declaration. For Section 1 of the 14th Amendment says, Nor shall any state deprive any person of life liberty or property. 
But the Supreme Court justices ignored the intention of the framers of the Constitution, and they contrived a new interpretation of the law based in keeping with their own liberal philosophies. Abortion on demand was legalized in our country. By the time the decision was finally made, Jane Roe had already had her child and placed it up for adoption, but the decision was irrevocable, and our government had placed its seal of approval on abortion. And when they did so, pro-abortionists were arguing that legalization of abortion wouldn't really increase the number of abortions in our country, that they would only make them safer. Their prognostications could not have been more wrong. In fact, the carnage that resulted from that Supreme Court decision has been almost incalculable. Since Roe v. Wade, approximately 60 million babies have been aborted in our country. Centers for Disease Control is known to supply very conservative figures on the numbers of abortions performed in the U.S., that even according to these conservative figures, there were 652,639 babies aborted in 2014, latest date for which I could find accurate figures. That's over 54,000 every month. That's over 12,000 every week. That's nearly 2,000 every day. And that's about 74 every hour. Even by the most conservative estimates, during the time that we meet for chapel today, 74 babies will be aborted in our country. As I said, the CDC publishes very conservative estimates. More reliable figures probably come from the Goodmacher Institute of Planned Parenthood because their statistics are based on surveys of actual abortion providers. And they estimate that 926,200 babies were aborted in the U.S. in 2014, which is the lowest number we have on record since Roe v. Wade. Nearly a million babies, meaning that 105 babies would be aborted during the hour we spend together in chapel. The death toll from abortion is nothing less than staggering, especially when you compare it to the number of casualties and the major conflicts that we've been involved in as a nation. About 25,000 Americans died in the Revolutionary War. About half a million died in the Civil War. About 117,000 died in World War I. About 407,000 in World War II. 54,000 in the Korean War, and about 59,000 in Vietnam. More American babies die every single year through abortion in the United States than any single one of these conflicts. And some years, we've aborted more babies in the U.S. in a single year than casualties in all of these conflicts combined. Perhaps you don't want to hear another statistic, but there's one more that needs to be shared. 
which I think is the most frightening of all. According to the National Institute of Health, one out of every eight women who has an abortion in the United States claims to be a born-again evangelical Christian at the time they sought the abortion. Let that sink in for a moment. 13% of the women who seek an abortion claim to be evangelical Christians at the time they seek it. We're not talking about people who get an abortion, then are converted. They profess to be Christians in fairly conservative terms at the time they seek the abortion. Since Southern Baptists are the most numerous evangelical denomination in the United States, I can't help but believe that a vast number of these from among the 13% belong to our own denomination. You say, well, well, surely not Southern Baptist. Well, it was only a few years ago that we had the distinction of having both the U.S. president and vice president who were members of our denomination, Bill Clinton and Al Gore, and both of those were decidedly pro-abortion. And a couple of decades ago, I served on the faculty of a Southern Baptist institution whose Christian ethics professor was fond of writing letters to the editor of the local newspaper defending abortion rights. Now, even in our own denomination, People have taken a very unbiblical stand on this important moral issue. Why? Well, I think it's because some people aren't true believers and they have not surrendered to the authority of Christ and the Holy Scriptures. But I think in some cases, people are honestly confused about what Scripture actually teaches on this issue. And I'm afraid that this confusion is partly our fault because we've offered some very poor arguments in support of our stance. If you look at the bumper stickers, if you look at the signs at pro-life rallies, you are most likely going to discover that the verse most commonly used to defend the pro-life movement is Deuteronomy 30, 19, which says, choose life. But frankly, Deuteronomy 30, 19 does not directly address the abortion issue at all. Instead, God is insisting that the children of Israel need to keep covenant with him, and he's warning if they break covenant with him that they will come under the curse of death. And when we take scriptures out of their context in order to defend our moral position, we might be signaling to people that there is no really compelling biblical case for our moral position. I don't believe that distorting the meaning of God's holy word is ever justified, even for the sake of winning a moral argument. And because we resort to the abuse of scripture to defend our position, some people may conclude that the Bible never addresses the matter at all. And that is very untrue. It is true that you'll never find in the holy scripture the explicit specific command, thou shalt not abort, 
But we do have the very clear sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. So we need to ask the simple question, is abortion murder? And the Bible shouts loudly that it is. Unfortunately, normally when we ask, is abortion murder, we immediately carry the discussion to issues of fetal development and viability and medical science. And I'm not scared of delving into that realm, but I don't think that is the critical issue. I'm not scared to delve into that realm because through the development of ultrasound technology, we now know that within 18 to 25 days after conception, the baby's heart is already beating. 40 days after conception, brain activity can be recorded. Eight weeks after conception, the baby feels and recoils from pain, can grasp, can swim, and the fingerprints that he carries for the rest of his life are already fully formed. By the ninth and 10th weeks after conception, 95% of the known organs and structures of the human body are in place. I think human life is obvious in these early stages. When I was the pastor of a church in Tennessee, I was preparing a sermon for Sanctity of Life Sunday and I was watching a program on educational television about fetal development when my two-year-old daughter, Rachel, skipped into the room. The minute she entered the room, there was a picture on the screen of a fetus eight weeks after conception. And I immediately turned to her to see what her reaction would be. She took one glance at the television screen and said, what a pretty baby, and then skipped right back out. I thought, yeah, what is obvious to a two-year-old really ought to be obvious to American Adults, this little one is a human baby. But fortunately, the scripture gives us clear enough ethical principles that we don't have to get bogged down in technical information about fetal development and viability. In Genesis 9-6, God defines murder simply as shedding the blood of a human made in God's image. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. The theological principle that makes murder so heinous and despicable in the eyes of the holy God is that man is made in the image and likeness of God. And since man is made in the image of God, an attack upon a human being is an indirect attack upon God himself. I'm a fan of John Knox, who's largely responsible for sparking the Protestant Reformation in Scotland. I would like to think that my ancestors on the McGregor and Denham side of the family heard the gospel of Jesus Christ because of the influence of this great reformer and his call to bring the Scots back to the biblical gospel. You've heard of Knox before. He's the one who famously prayed, Lord, give me Scotland ere I die. But after Knox had left Scotland, In 1555 to 56, the papal prelates 
tried him for heresy in absentia, condemned him to death, and since they couldn't lay hands on him, they decided to burn him in effigy, which meant that they took two pieces of overlapping cloth, cut them out in the shape of Knox's body, stitched them together at the edges, and then stuffed them with straw in order to make a mannequin of John Knox. And dressing the mannequin in his clothes to make it resemble Knox, they burned that mannequin at the stake. They decided that since they couldn't get their hands on the actual man, they would do the next best thing and they would burn him in effigy. And what Genesis 9-6 is telling us is that any attack on the existence of a human being is an attack on God in effigy because we are bearers of the Imago Dei. We are God's closest representatives. And since murder is an attack on the existence of a human being made in the image of God, if we want to know whether abortion is murder, we simply need to ask, when does a little one receive the image of God? And Genesis answers that question for us as well. Genesis 1.27 says that Adam was created in the image and likeness of God. And then Genesis 5.3 adds, when Adam was 130 years old, he fathered a child in his likeness according to his image and named him Seth. So Adam is in the image and likeness of God. He passes his own image and likeness, which is that of God, to Seth. When? Well, the Christian Standard Bible says it was when Adam fathered Seth. And it's a reference to the moment of conception. Now, I'll admit that the Hebrew verb here has some ambiguity. Sometimes it refers to conception and sometimes it refers to birth. But it's easy to tell which meaning is intended because when the verb has a female subject, it refers to birth. When it has a male subject, it refers to conception. For obvious reasons, men don't have babies. This is confirmed even more here by the Hiphel stem, which is reserved particularly for references to conception in Hebrew. So the idea is at the very moment of conception, Adam passed his own image and likeness, which is the image and likeness of God to his offspring. Thus, an attack on the existence of any child from the moment of conception on is a murderous act by biblical standards. So much so that God actually values the life of the unborn as highly as he values the life of a mature adult. And he regards an attack on the existence of the unborn as as heinous an act as an attack on the existence of a mature human being. We can infer that from Exodus 21, verses 22 through 25. The scripture says, when men get in a fight 
and hit a pregnant woman so that her children are born prematurely, but there is no injury, the one who hit her must be fined as the woman's husband demands from him, and he must pay according to judicial assessment. This is the Christian standard. Now, there are admittedly some translations that render the Hebrew differently. They say when men get in a fight and hit a pregnant woman so that she miscarries. And those translations give you the impression that there is no consequence other than a fine if the unborn child is killed as a result of this blow. I would argue those aren't translations, they're mistranslations. The Hebrew text simply says, her children come out of her. And it can be either a reference to premature birth of a live baby or miscarriage. In fact, the surrounding context entertains both scenarios. Because the text goes on to say, but there is no injury, some versions say to her. But there is no law in the Hebrew text. There is no such delimitation. It says, if there is no injury, and it leaves it open-ended, i.e., it refers either to injury to the mother or to the prematurely born child. Then a fine is paid. Cover the additional expenses of child care for those months and the danger to the mother and the child. But then it says, if there is injury, and again, it's not delimited, referring to injury either to the mother or to the prematurely born child, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, bruise for bruise, and wound for wound. If the pregnant woman is killed as a result of the blow, The man who struck the blow forfeits his life. But if she miscarries and though she survives, gives birth to a deceased child, he must suffer the consequences of that also life for life. He forfeits his own for taking the life of the prematurely born child. The point that is clear here is that in God's sight, the value of the life of the unborn is completely equal to the life of a mature human being. So much so that causing the death of an unborn child deserves under the laws of the Israelites the penalty of death. Now, some of you might be saying, okay, Quarles, are these just the rantings of a graybeard professor? Because after all, uh, for every statement you've made from the scripture, I can find some commentator or some scholar who would hold an opposing view. Well, in cases like this, perhaps it would be helpful to go and see how the earliest church interpreted the biblical text that we've examined this morning. And what you will find is that what you've heard this morning is fully consistent with the early church's understanding of these passages. In earliest Christian literature, and by that I'm talking particularly about writings within the apostolic fathers, this earliest generation of Christian literature 
at the end of the first century and very beginning of the second century, you find statement after statement after statement decrying the sin of abortion. An example would be the Didache. It's known as the teaching of the 12 apostles. It's a Christian manual that supposedly preserves oral traditions taught by the 12 disciples, but not inscripturated for us in our New Testament canon. Didache 2.2 interprets the sixth commandment as prohibiting both abortion and infanticide with these words. It says, you shall not murder children by abortion, nor kill what has been conceived. Two ethical principles in that statement. Number one, abortion is murder. And number two, life begins at conception. We find an almost identical statement in the Epistle of Barnabas, 19.5. Now, the Epistle of Barnabas was not penned by Barnabas, the traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, but it nevertheless preserves for us very, very early ethical teaching affirmed by Christians who had direct access to apostolic testimony. And Barnabas 19.5 says, you shall not murder a child by abortion, nor kill it after it has been born. Once again, they clearly state that abortion is murder. And there are other statements in early second century Christian literature that are even more graphic. In fact, in the document known as the Revelation of Peter, we find a lengthy description of the outpouring of the wrath of God on those responsible for abortions. The text says, and near this fiery flame, there is a great and very deep pit and into it there flow all kinds of things from everywhere, judgment and horrifying things and excretions and the women who aborted their babies are swallowed up to their necks in this and are punished with great pain. These are they who have procured abortions and have ruined the work of God which he has created. Opposite them is another place where the children sit alive, crying out to God and lightnings go forth from those children which pierce the eyes of those who by their fornication have brought about their destruction. And men and women stand above them stripped and their children stand opposite them in the place of delight. And the children sigh and cry to God because of their parents. These are they who neglected us and cursed us and transgressed your commandment. They killed us and they withheld from us the light which you have appointed for all. And the milk of the mothers flows from their breast and congeals and smells foul. And from it come forth the maggots, the tiny beasts that devour that flesh, which turn and torture them forever with their husbands because they forsook the commandment of God and murdered their children. And the children will be given to the caretaking angel, but those who slew them will be tortured forever for God wills it to be so. The Bible is not silent on the abortion issue. 
And the early church was certainly not silent on the abortion issue. And the contemporary church must not be silent on the abortion issue either. Our Confession of Faith, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, says in section 15 on the church and social order, we should speak on behalf of the unborn and contend for the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural death. We must speak on behalf of the unborn. And I would argue when we speak in behalf of the unborn, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ which most needs to be spoken. Though political involvement and social activism are certainly to be encouraged, make no mistake about that, the ultimate solution to the sin of abortion is not activism, it is evangelism. Because it is only the gospel of Jesus Christ that renews the human mind and transforms the human heart and opens our eyes to the horrors of this heinous sin. That's what the Baptist faith and message means when it prefaces its statement on the church and the social order by saying, means and methods used for the improvement of society and the establishment of righteousness among men can be truly and permanently helpful only when they are rooted in the regeneration of the individual by the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. And I'm afraid that those of us who grew up under the era of the moral majority often became confused about that. And we allowed a commitment to political activism to supplant our commitment to biblical evangelism as if activism were the solution. At one point in my pastoral ministry, I was very heavily involved as an activist in the pro-life movement, attending the rallies, attending the marches, writing constantly letters to the editor and that kind of thing. And as long as I was doing that, there was one man in our church who really applauded me. But when I became so overwhelmed with the demands of pastoral ministry that I no longer had time to be as involved as I was before, he became very upset with me and once met me angrily in my office and accused me of waffling, of compromise, and that kind of thing. And after he unleashed on me for quite a while, when he paused to catch his breath, I said, let me ask you something. Out of all of the rallies and all of the marches that you have attended, how many people do you know were led to change their mind from supporting abortion to supporting the sanctity of life. He said, well, well Chuck, no, I wouldn't let him off the hook. Name one person. And he could not. 
I said, well, brother, this last week, I shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with our mayor and his wife. The mayor's wife confessed faith in Jesus as God's savior and king. And in the conversations that we have had since, she has moved based on the power of scripture from her commitment to supporting abortion to a commitment to support the sanctity of life. Based on our experiences, what do you think is the most effective approach? Is it activism or is it evangelism? Now, please don't misunderstand what I am saying. I want you to be active in the fight against abortion. I want you to cast your vote for pro-life candidates. I want you to write your letters to the editors. I want you to attend the marches. I want you to make yourself available to be a foster parent or to adopt children. But more than anything else, I want you to share the gospel because that is the only thing that renews the human mind and transforms the human heart. Something else must be said. According to the Goodmacher Institute of Planned Parenthood, by the time they reach age 40, one out of every four women in the United States has had an abortion. 25%. That leads me to believe that in a group this large, there is a woman who has had an abortion. And there is a man who has paid for an abortion. There is a person who has driven someone to get an abortion and maybe even someone who has performed an abortion. For you, I have bad news and good news. The bad news is that you are a murderer or complicit in it. It might seem it would be very compassionate of me to stand up here and try to tell you that what you did was not really murder. It was just removing a gob of tissue and that kind of thing. But that would actually be the most hateful thing I could do to you because the scripture is clear that abortion is murder and redefinition of terms will not appease your guilt before a holy God who is zealous for the protection of his image and his creatures. The bad news, you are a murderer. Drives us to the good news that God loves and forgives even murderers. Think for just a minute about the great heroes of Scripture, Old Testament and New, and, and you'll see a, a pretty large number of forgiven murderers. Men like Moses, who murdered the Egyptian taskmaster and buried his body in the sand. Men like David, who murdered Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, in order to hide his sin of adultery. And men like the Apostle Paul, who had his hand in the murder of Stephen in his effort to silence Stephen's gospel testimony. That these men were forgiven by the grace of God 
and they were used to fulfill amazing purposes in his kingdom's work. And the same grace that forgave them is available to you. If you stop making excuses, if you stop redefining terms, and you admit to what you've done, repent of what you have done, and cast yourself on the mercies of a loving Savior. All of us are sinners. Your heinous sin may have been murder. My heinous sin was blasphemy. But both sins deserve the eternal wrath of a holy God. And we are so sinful, there is nothing we can do to make up for our sins and make ourselves right with the heavenly judge. God loves us so much that he came into this world in the person of Jesus Christ, lived for us the sinless, perfect life that we could never live, and then went to the cross to be punished for our sins in our place so that we would not have to be punished. That's right. He took the penalty for our murderous acts, for our blasphemous words for our lustful thoughts. So that if we repent of our sin and believe in Jesus as God's Savior and King, when the heavenly judge slams his gavel to pronounce the eternal verdict, we will be proclaimed not guilty, righteous, innocent, blameless, perfect. Our sin was transferred to Christ and he paid the penalty so that he could transfer his righteousness to us and then reward us for it. The good news that I'm telling you today is that the words of the old hymn are true. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. I pray that you will be driven to your knees today and in faith cry out for that pardon. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Would you ask yourself, am I doing enough to stop the scourge of abortion in the United States? Am I speaking on behalf of the unborn? And most of all, am I speaking the gospel enough? For it's the only remedy that will ultimately stop this sin. To change the laws of men without changing the hearts of men would be a temporary solution at best. Trust the gospel. If you have in any way been involved in the abortion of a child, would you cry out to God for his great mercy now? Would you confess your faith in him as God, Savior, and King? And would you trust that his mercies are more than enough to separate your sin as far from you as the east is from the west and to erase the record of your guilt forever from the eyes of the heavenly judge. Father, thank you for your grace. 
that changes people and that forgives people just like us. I pray that you would unleash this transforming grace right now, forgiving sinners and changing us at the same time. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.